This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with my friend, Jamie King, who I love so much. We talk about starting work in the industry at a very young age and how that impacted our lives, raising children, body image, the impact of social media, and so, so much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Jamie King, and I'm done with apologizing for who I am. Sorry, not sorry. It's really simple. I think simple ideas such as love and loving, education, and health and well-being, which to me hits all of those things physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and that every mother, father, family have access to those things. I've always been an ally for equality, and I'm doing my part to make sure that no one ever has to be in there again. We have an epidemic, and suicide being the second cause of death in kids, and 30% higher than it ever was before. Um, We need to talk about the value of what friendship means and what we think value is. We're living in a world where truth has become inconsequential, and yet at the same time, it is one of the most powerful things that we have. So do everything that you can to support those journalists, to recognize them, to praise them, to thank them for putting their bodies and their lives and their minds and their families on the line to give us the information so that we can choose and we can decide for ourselves. It's okay that we are flawed individuals. It's okay that we are not perfect. The perfection is in all of it, in all of our moments. So I was trying to remember exactly when the first time we met, and I think because you've been sort of famous and working since you were little, it was probably around our teenage years. I'm, a, I'm older than you are, but it's. I think it says something that I can't remember. Like you were really? always a part of like the existence of my world. Do you remember the first, the very first time we met? I don't remember the very first time we physically met because I've always been such a fan of yours. So I feel like ever That's since sweet. I was no, you. really though, like ever since I was little. And that's the thing about artists, right? It's like you feel like you've met them and that you've known them. That's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, I feel and like there's I'm, the, I've known you forever, forever. And, and I think also because you've been, you know, one of the the rare few that actually have been willing to speak out on things. It's like you're even closer to the circle of of my, yeah, you know, daily world because I know if there's a fight to be fought that I can go to you and say, "Will you help me fight this?" And you're you're always there. Which thank you thank so much. Thank you. Thank you for that. 
so I don't know, like for me growing up being a working child, which yeah. basically there's laws against that, but yet we were working children. Yeah. And there's not in the fashion industry. Right. Really. Right. And when right. I spoke about, about that, no one had talked about that. And there was a big ruckus about that. Well, it's a, it's a little different, I think, now because everybody feels like they can come forward and, and speak, which is so great. So hopefully there will be some change. Um, but I always found it so interesting that, like, we sign contract. Like, I signed my Who's the Boss contract when I was 10. Right? I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do when I was 10. I know. And then you're a kid and you're working these crazy hours, which, again, there are laws against that in other countries. Yeah. And they do everything they can to protect you. But it's fucked up. It's so, it's such a weird existence. And the amount of time spent, you know, having a job at such a young age. And never being asked, like, okay, what what do you want? Like, what what do you want? I was still on the same show when I was 19. I mean, that's (laughs) the thing. But your brain can't really process that, right? right? It's like I look back and I started working when I was 13 years old, 14 years old. And it's – Tell me how that happened for you. I – I always knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, I did not fit in. I was consistently bullied. I was very much a loner as a kid because all I wanted to do was read books. And and I think because I, I looked a particular way, but I, did, I wasn't one of those kids that had a lot of money, I had no place to fit. Right. And it was felt very brutal. And, um, Were you tall at a young age too? I was tall, and I had big boobs, and I would bind, I would literally duct tape them down hmm. because I was terrified to go to school. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, like I mean, there's so many. They bound my boobs on who's the boss, right? Yeah. So it's so interesting because immediately you you grow up with this kind of shame about your physical mm-hmm. body or whatever that thing is, and and uh, just what so many young women go through and and I want I just wanted to get out of where I was from because I always felt either older or like I had to survive something that was different than most kids my age and I had seen an advertisement in the local newspaper that if you went to this modeling school you'd meet people from a big city an agent from a big city and I begged my parents to let me do this and I did and so I went to New York when I just like just turned 14, like just turned 14 with my mother. And then... From Nebraska. From Nebraska. So 13 years old. Yes. And you go to New York (laughs) from Nebraska. From Nebraska with my mom. What was your first impression of the big city? I I mean, I was was excited. There was a part of me that was excited because there's, you know, when you're so young and I don't know you some I think I had something inside of me that felt like I was invincible or a need to get out of where mm, I was from just some sort of calling or drive or something yeah yeah you know because you wouldn't be you wouldn't have done it either you know what I mean I think mm-hmm. that there's just something in but I I don't know I think it had to do something with a, a need to feel like I, I needed to survive or get out of where I was because I didn't feel like I could uh like I fit there and um it's so interesting because, you know, I went there with my mother and then I went to go back to school and then they said, you know, 
I immediately started working. And so they basically told her that I would be chaperoned, which I wasn't, you know. It's like they lied to, they, in that industry, they lied to the parents. My name is Cameron Russell, and I've worked as a model for 15 years. At its best, modeling is a creative partnership. We must find a way to submit to someone else's direction, someone else's vision. When they tell us to close our eyes, to arch our backs, to open our lips, we do it for them. We breathe in for them, we breathe out for them. The highest compliment to a model is she'll do anything. And when they tell us to jump or to dance or to laugh, we do it completely unrestrained. Other times, it's being vulnerable enough to lead and expose real feeling. There is no script in modeling, so the model has to own their performance. People rarely spend time together without talking, but that's what modeling is. It's finding a way to communicate and to build a relationship and to be someone without words. The silence required by my job is often mistaken for being voiceless. Uh, the assumption is I have nothing to say. And sometimes I believed that too. There were many moments when I found myself speechless. So what did they tell your mother? Uh, well, that I would be, you know, chaperoned and I'd be living with adults and that I would be taken care of and, and all of those things certainly did not happen, and then you're in a place where you're a young child and you don't want to tell your parents what's really going on because you don't right. want to be sent home, but you don't, you also, you did know. Did you know it, it was wrong when you were going through it? I didn't know that it was, it felt wrong, but I didn't know that it was wrong, wrong until I was about 17, 18, and I quit. Mm -hmm. At the height of my career to become an actor, I remember. At that time, and it was unheard of. I don't remember the show I saw you walk, but I saw you walk in a show. It was before Charmed, so it had to be in the 90s. And, I mean, you had this thing that was undeniable. This, you know, like there's certain people that you could be in a restaurant or something, and, and something could make you turn around and look towards the door, and you're like, oh, it's because so-and-so walked in, and they had yes. that thing. Yes. That's what you had. Oh, thank you. And you were such a like a a little person. Yes. I was the youngest one. Yes. And, and I feel like for a really long time you I were was. the youngest one. I was one. the baby. The baby. And and I it's so interesting because I look back on it and we've had so many lives. Right. And I look about how these were such formative years of our, mm -hmm. our lives as children. And the things that you see and the experiences that you're put in, and you have no youth. It's taken from you. But you and, don't know any and better. And you don't know any better. <laughs> yes. And then as yes. you get older, you're like, how many, you know, when you're in 20 million therapy sessions and you're right. like, oh, God, yeah, I, I never got to be a kid. I didn't get to go to prom. Yeah. It was good. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah. I used to get asked questions all the time of like, do you feel like you missed out on having a normal childhood? I was like, well, no, because for me, this was normal. Like I don't, I, I didn't have anything to relate to. Exactly. Until there I got no older. other reference points. The no prom thing was always a big thing for me. And I gave my parents shit about it for so long because I didn't go to regular school. So I didn't go to yes, a prom. Yeah. And then for my 40th birthday, my husband threw me a fake prom. That is the best. 
an 80s Dave's fake such a good guy. He's such a good guy. Yeah. So he had all these 80s dresses. No way. Yeah, really? that he yeah, and it was a surprise party, so I had no idea what was happening. So I did eventually get my prom. Oh my god, that's the best. Yeah, it was very sweet. But yeah, all these things that you don't realize like, wow, you know, and and I think it shaped like my social awkwardness. Mine too. Very much so. (laughs) Because I'm socially super uncomfortable and I think that's because I was never around my peers. I was always around adults so I had to behave a certain way and I felt like I had to strive to be Mm adult-like and so I never – but I think also I think it makes us really fun moms. Yes. (laughs) Because I so badly want them to have I know that childhood that I, didn't I know, get to have. and it makes you it, you know it's it's very interesting because I look and I'm like okay well we we serve, we we are victors through that time you know like yeah. handling these very truly adult situations with huge responsibilities and I cannot think of a time where I did not. It's it's, it's hard for me to rack my memory of when I wasn't taking care of myself, when I didn't pay for my bills and and write my own checks. And since I was a a child. How did that shape your relationships with like men growing up? It's interesting because I- Did you look for the man that was going to take care of you or did you- I didn't. If anything, I think it was something that I, I always knew that I had myself or some part of me knew that I would always- I would always be able to like take care of me right. uh, financially. And when it came to men, I didn't look for men to take care of me financially. But of course, you know, some of the men that I dated were quite famous. And it's interesting because you want some, like I, I wanted someone that was on my level, that was creative, that was interesting. But men, a lot of men couldn't handle it. Like they think they want that or they, you know, when I was younger, they they think that they want someone that's strong and young and mm-hmm. financially free and et cetera. But it's, I don't think that that's the typical dynamic. dynamic, Yeah, you know. Through all of your success in your life, right, how do you think that the early bullying that you faced shaped <sighs> who you are today? Or how do you think it just shaped you as a person? It created a deeply empathetic person and also a person that has always felt outside of the crowd. You know, when you talk about being socially awkward, yeah, I don't, like, I, I get very nervous sometimes, like, yeah. Yeah, I have friends that are like, why don't you come out to dinner? I'm like, how many people are there and how loud is the I restaurant? Know, I know. It's an yeah. auditory thing. Mm-hmm. It's a... It's a crowd thing. It's right. it's very interesting. Do you think it's due to being bullied? I do. I do think you have that an insecurity from being bullied. A hundred percent. I remember. Um, I asked my parents to save up for a pair of Limited Express stretch pants <laughs> because I thought that was going to stop the bullying. Just like even for a couple of months, mm. right? Like I thought if I could blend in somehow, and I wore them on the bus. And then, you know, I swear it was like a scene. I will never forget this happening. Um, and I walk in the cafeteria and all like the cool kids at the popular turf like waving me over. I look, I turn around. I'm like, who are they? You know, and I remember it just like I remember doing scenes in a movie, mm. right? And I walk up and I was kind of like, oh my God, it's the pants. It's the pants. Oh. Like it's a magic trick, right? And the boys <laughs> had these napkins, and they had ketchup smeared all over it. And they started throwing these napkins at me. Oh, my God. And I ran to the bathroom, obviously, to 
cry and lock myself in a stall and I looked down and I had blood through my pants. And I had just gotten my period with these white pants with black polka dots and there was oh my blood God, that's everywhere. So How old were I, you? Ne- I must have been like 12. And so I never told my mother when I first got my period. I would hide. I never asked how to use a tampon. I would hide. I would like sneak it out to the trash can. I had so much shame about it. Where did that come from? From being walking into the cafeteria and being thrown, like literally having these things thrown at me because that was my the first my first period. And so, I think that's also why, you know, when when you experience public humiliations as a child and seemingly the most important part of your life, right, with all of these kids. Um, I never trust, I think it it made me very afraid to trust when people wanted to welcome me because I felt like I didn't deserve to be right. a part of it, right? But I also fight for very hard for menstrual rights and, and now openly talk about all of it because I have severe endometriosis and PCOS and adenomyosis and and what turned into one thing ended up becoming like, I'm 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 not gonna be. Judith Light taught me how to use a tampon. Oh my god! Through the door of a set. No way. She told me to lay down in the bathtub, and she's yelling at me because my parents never came to set with me because I had a younger brother and they just didn't give a shit about like being on a set. So I always had a guardian, which yeah. I think was saved our relationship because it wasn't about. Their lives revolving around yes. me. Yes. But I got my period on the set and there was no one there. And so I went to Judith and I was oh like, my I got God. my period. So she's, she's through the door. She's going, okay, lay, lay in the bathtub <laughs> and put your legs up on the sides of the bathtub and put it in. And so, yeah, so that's my. That's, that's so wild. <laughs> story. I know it's so it's crazy. It's so wild. Do you think kids have some sort of like innate pecking order to bully to figure out the social structure of a class or a school do you think that's like something that's innate in every child because I don't know if it's innate or I do you think it's taught I think it's taught I think sometimes it's confusing like yesterday my son asked to cut his hair off and I was like wait what why you know what I mean? Like, I because he's always had this beautiful long hair, and he loves having long hair. And um, he said because I want people to know that I I want people to know I'm a boy. And I was like, people know that you're a boy. He's like, but I want everyone to know that I'm a boy, that I'm not a girl. Be- and I and I was like, what happened when I was working? And he was at the park, and a mother kept addressing him as a girl, and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I mean the little boy, and then at Universal, that he put these robes on, and they're like, oh, you're such a beautiful, a handsome wizard. And he's like, oh, I mean witch. And then he's like, oh, I mean wizard. Mm-hmm. So he, and that's happened a lot through his childhood, and it never was a thing. And, and I think now I'm watching my child go through these, these gender norms, social norms, this, that, the other. And of course, he, he identifies as a boy, but... The, he loves long hair, and now it's like I was just sort of really taken aback by his – he's seeing that he cannot move freely right. in this world based on the length of his, his hair. hair. Which and is it's just so, so ridiculous. But that's like adult-inflicted, right? That's well, it's like- all – yeah, it's, that's adult. But So that's why I think that it's our children are picking up these social cues from 
what we do as adults. And I think it's some, you know, in our household, everything is so, you know, it's, it's disciplined, but free. You have a girl and a boy? Two boys. Two boys. Three and five. Leo Thomas and James Knight. And, you know, we've never, we raised, we've never raised them with any, like, we talk about consent. We talk about how we speak to each other, how we use our voice, our tone of voice, why everyone, you know, I'm very honest about how we treat one another. And, and it's interesting because I see that their, their intelligence and, and their emotional intelligence on how they, they deal with other people is, is so different. And, and in a way, they, they're learning later about structures or social structures, hierarchies, yeah. because we didn't raise them to be like that. And I'm like, when I would see this happen in even younger kids, when they would go to preschool or whatever, you know, they're in preschool, but like when they first started, I'm like, where does that kid know this word? And I know. how does this kid... I know, it's terrifying. And, da, 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 and it's like, oh, well, obviously that's picked up from the home. A kid doesn't know automatically what a, yeah. what a gun is or what this is or that, you know, like this is this is learned behavior. Right. And And children learn behavior from the minute that they're born. They know facial cues. They yeah. know the tones of voice. This is something that starts from the minute that they're born. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because a child cannot speak doesn't mean that he is not understanding all of your social cues. They actually, they did a study where they, they hook up uh, a child's brainwave, a, a, a baby's brainwave to a mother. And when the mother and the baby would look at each other, their brainwaves would sink, right? Mm. But if a mother held a phone and looked away, you could see what would happen to the child. Right. That young. And, right. And it's, so, it's a disconnect. It's a disconnect. So if, if we don't think that as adults, we are, from the very moment that our children are born, right. creating, well, I'll look at you when you do this, versus I'm in my own stuff and then... Yeah, it's imprinting. It's imprinting. Yeah. I have horses, and it's the same thing with baby. You know, you, you, as soon as they come out, you want to hold them. You yeah. want to teach them how to walk, and they call it imprinting. And we're, we, yes. we do that, and sometimes, you know, we're not conscious about the imprinting. We're imposing No, because on we're them. not infallible, and it's yeah. not easy. And, and last week, my son asked me why people point. He, he asked why people would point and why they were mean, and I, and I asked for an example. And he said, well, at school, brother fell, and people pointed, and they laughed, and they were mean. Why would people point and laugh and be mean when brother got hurt? And I said, why do you think? And he said, I don't know, because it, it, it was not funny. You know? And I said, baby, sometimes some children don't get enough hugs, and sometimes when we get nervous... Maybe they were nervous when we see something that scares us. Sometimes we laugh. We all have different responses to seeing something happen. I think parents sit them down in front of YouTube. Yeah. And there's a spiral that goes down. And there are millions of videos on YouTube of people oh my God. falling. Yeah, and laughing. And, and laughing and yeah. having it be a form of entertainment. And I think as soon as a child sees one of those videos, yep. it becomes... Normalized. Again, imprinted yeah. Yeah. that, oh, that's it's funny when people fall. Yeah, or get hurt. Um, peace is very important because it makes you be good. Makes you be good. Yeah. And, and how do you see, how can we make peaceful, more peace in the world? How can we help with peace? Um, um planting flowers. 
Oh, I love Brooke Linen. I really do. Did you know that you spend one third of your entire life in sheets? I mean, this means obviously those sheets need to be super comfortable. When you sleep, you should sleep well on hotel quality sheets that don't cost hotel prices. Brooklinen was named the winner of the best online bedding category by Good Housekeeping and has more than 35,000 five-star reviews. The company was founded in early 2014 by a husband and wife who wanted to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. They just wanted comfort. They offer luxury sheets, towels, bedding, and more without the luxury markup. Get this. Did you know most bedding is marked up as much as 300%? What? I absolutely love my Brook Linen sheets. They are so comfortable and their towels are so soft. So I am excited to tell you that brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer to my listeners. 10% off and free shipping when you use promo code Alyssa at brooklinen.com. Brook Linen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get 10% off and free shipping is to use promo code Alyssa at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A. They really are the best sheets ever. So have you ever thought about like if you'd be raising a girl differently? Because I think we are so blessed right now to have this sort of freedom to raise kids in a real gender fluid way. I think it takes a lot of bravery and courage and and strength and awareness to raise our children like that. Yeah. I don't think it's easy. But it's you know. a lot more permissible now than it used to be, even though yes, it takes certain, all, yes, all of that. Cer- in certain places, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But at least now I could read my son a story about a princess yes, and it yes. not be something that's like super controversial. And I think that that's great. But, I, but I'm raising one of each and it's so, it's so interesting. I can't, I can't how, see. That's the thing. I can't imagine it uh, because I'm not doing it. Uh, raising a, a girl right now, I and people are like, well, but I'm raising my, my boys as I would raise, I, I, it's hard, right? It's like, I'm like, oh, I'm raising a human being. Yeah, for me, I'm looking at them both as, as being like, okay, how do I raise Milo to not be a man that is the type of m- man that I don't like, but yeah. also make him strong enough to be able to function in a society that raises those types of men yes, up. Yes, exactly. And that's a fine balance. But also with Bella, like raising her to believe that she can do anything physically, that she can do anything mentally, but still celebrate the things that make her feminine. And exactly. So, it's, that's um, so important. Yeah. You know, for a long time we've been, you know, and I think I talked to you about this before, this idea of what it means to be a female leader or female boss. And, and for a long time you would uh, – you know, I, when I would meet the rare uh, 
CEO that was a woman, it's like they had a very masculine edge to them because they had to rid themselves of the, the very qualities that make women quite beautiful and brilliant, our intuition, our empathy, our emotions, things like that, right? Yeah. They're not allowed in the boardroom. Yeah. And then, and then therefore, when, when there's only room for barely one woman, you know, at the table, they, they, they lead like men. Right, because they don't they don't know any other way. They don't know any they other way. See men they, leaders exactly. and not women leaders. Exactly, and so it's like, how do we start to shift the mindset so that as more women take positions of power and leadership, that we learn that we can lead, that we can be both strong and assertive, and also utilize our qualities that make us so beautiful right. as women. I always go back to like how. And who succeeds in the world of activism and the women that are st- – because women lead activism. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And the women that do it so successfully are the women that lead through uh, grace, sort of this – There's a dignity in that. This goddess mentality but also a service mentality. It has to be. And I think if we had more business leaders that were women that led through service, yes. I think that that is, that is the place to lead from. That for me, everything is service. Yeah. You know, everything to me is, everything I do is to be of service. That's why I'm an artist. That's why I'm an activist. It's, that's how I've always been. And that's a blessing and it's a curse too, right? It's like when you lead, when you lead to be of service, to let people know that they are not alone, to let people know that you will do whatever you can. And also it's, it's also led from seeing it inside of yourself when you realize you are this, like that you, like when I, when I felt like, for instance, like when I uh, was trying to get pregnant and I was consistently, you know, losing babies and I was, you know, it was such a journey. I was very young and it was a result of having endometriosis and, and not being diagnosed accurately. And, and I couldn't find anyone that had been through this and nobody spoke up about this stuff. And it was like, I, I really felt like the one thing that society had told me was my only gift being a woman, which is to carry a child. I couldn't do that. And so therefore I was broken and defunct as a woman. Right. And, you know, I was, was that self-inflicted? No, that's what I feel okay. society That was your does. projection. You that yeah. was my projection. And I never realized I had that projection until, right. you know, I kept miscarrying. And I was told, well, I had a very slim chance yeah. at actually carrying a child. And I was 20 years old. I'm like, wait, what? 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 And then the other part of me came up and was like, you know what? That's between me and God. I'm going to have a fucking baby. Like, I was like, do you know what I mean? And, yeah. like, I got real gangster about it, you know? And <laughs> I, 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 it, no joke, right? Yeah. So when all of science and all of medicine is trying to tell you one thing, sometimes you or, or the facts or things, you know, this is the way it is. I think sometimes when you go into a place of deep prayer in your heart, you find this kind of resilience and strength and truth inside of yourself, and you pull that out, yeah. and you defy and I think especially when it deals with childbearing, yes, that strength is pretty powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah. I miscarried before both of my children. And I eventually just thought, okay, this is what – and I was older. I was 30, 38 with Milo when I got pregnant and 41 with Bella. Wow. And I thought, this is just the way my body prepares for it. Yeah. 
And when I look back now, I'm like, wow, I should have probably freaked out about this. But I had such a resilience inside of me of like, no, this is what my body needs to do to get to, to the get place. To that place. But yeah. it never occurred to me that I wasn't going to have children. Like that was the mission and that's what I was going to do. So, yeah. so And that- also the timing, right? So like when you're in your late 30s, we're so different in our 30s and late 30s right. than in right. our 20s or – yeah. It's just, it's, it's fascinating. How do you think the bridge from, or how do we combat what has happened with bullying from the bridge from um, it being, you know, in person when you're at school to the cyber bully? You know, I just heard from the top down, when you asked that, what does the top down mean? I think it really comes from a place of, I'm thinking about after the election, I felt such a strong sense of overwhelm. And I was actually talking, it was Sally Cohen. It was, it was Sally Cohen I was in town. Her. And I was, dinner Sally. I love you, Sally. I love you, Sally. And um, I think this must have been like eight months after the election. And I was like, Sally, I feel like I'm standing in the ocean and I keep getting hit by the waves. And I'm caught in the undertone. I can't breathe. And every time I come up for air, I get hit again and I'm caught and I can't breathe. And I'm going to drown. Like, I, I don't know how you keep going on air and, and talking when, like, because I'd already been through the campaign trail. Like, yeah. it had been so yeah. many years. Like, it just felt like forever. And it yeah. was ne- like this terror was never going to end the overwhelm. And she said, yeah. And she's like, but isn't it interesting that what's really going on is on the beach, what they're really doing? Right. right? And it's interesting that I'm thinking about this, this idea of, over- and I was like, okay, how am I going to combat this experience of overwhelm of so many issues that I want to tackle and take care of when I'm one person and every time I pick up the phone, there's only so many phone calls I can make in a day. There's only so many ways that I can mobilize. Like, you know exactly this experience I'm talking about. And the other thing that I would add to that is because we started working at such a young age, we have that worker bee mentality where you're like, you you can't stop, you have to keep going. And if you stop... Like, if I rest or stop, there's a guilt. I feel guilt. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time for me to be able to be like, okay, I'm allowed to take 45 minutes. Put down the phone, be with the kids. Absolutely. Without a fear that that I'm off track. But the reason why I'm bringing up this example is because I came into a real place inside where I realized all I can do is do my best every day in my own personal life and lead from my heart and make simple, clear choices to be loving, giving, caring, sharing, respectful, dignified. I may not be able to go and change the world and change everything, but how can I wash this cup in this moment with a bit more loving and care? How does that translate to what I write online? There's this great, and I'm going to butcher this, but there's this great Richard Branson quote where he talks about if we can just take care of ourselves and our own circles with our ideals and everybody just focuses on that, then eventually the circles will overlap. That is what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm getting to. And I, when it comes to bullying or whatever, I think I, I see that tackling that with with being loving, with how do I post and what do I post of myself? Do I, you know, am I being honest about my life? You know, what am I giving people to look to? 
And, and the reason why I'm saying that is because when you have people that are in positions of power that are creating a life that's not real, that makes it look like it's a, like a, a museum where everything is perfect and rich and famous mm-hmm. and this and that and the other, then you are setting up people for failure because that is not real life. That's not how it truly is. Right. And, the, and why I'm saying this is because the more that we set up that example – we're we're not giving people a chance to to fill in the gaps, right? Like that's where the bullying comes from. Is right. that unless you have all of these things, because that's where it started. For what I saw in school, unless you had all of these things, unless you could be just like this, and you had everybody, you know, like yeah, a perception of the box, a perception of the box, and you need to fit into this box. Yeah, I, I have a real thing about. I don't even like being on my device. Right, and people that are very close to me know that. I like being here. Cyberbullying by Vincent Parsons. Another text message? Why does this keep on happening? My topic is cyberbullying. The points that I'll be addressing today is what is cyberbullying, maps that lead to cyberbullying, how it contributes to suicide, and how we can stop it. To start with, cyberbullying is using electronics or online resources to bully a person by sending a message of imitating or threatening nature. According to DoSomething.org, 52% of young people report being cyberbullied. Kids and teens are now getting their own electronics and mobile devices at a younger age. They also have access to many social media sites that can share information of any individual. In addition, the data on Pacers.org have shown that 81% of young people think that online bullying is the easier way to get away with than doing it in person. Several sites and apps like Yik Yak, Whisper, and Snapchat allow our user to set up anonymous accounts and post whatever they want. Some of these apps have features where the message can be automatically deleted after posting. This allows the victim to be harassed by the bully multiple times. Lastly, some kids have used those sites and apps engaged in hurtful bullying that have led to suicide and suicidal attempts. An article on familyandeducation.com states that the app Asaw FM was involved in a suicidal death of a 12-year-old girl, Rebecca Sedwell-Comforta. DoSomething.org states that these bullying victims are two to nine times more likely to consider committing suicide. How to stop it. Victims can perform CBR, copy, block, and report. Victims can copy or get a screenshot of the offending message before any deleting occurs. Next, the victim should block the bully on social media and mobile phone devices. Finally, and most importantly, report any and all harassing messages that are received. Reporting to authorities such as parents, teachers, and police can help you. Something recently happened to me where I was contacted by a person who got my phone number from one of my friends. This individual texts and FaceTimed me harassing messages. I repeatedly told this person to stop. Then, be, then they began to use foul language in their messages. That's when I told my mom and she used CBR to make the situation end. In conclusion, cyberbullying cannot just hurt, it can kill. Misusing electronics or online resources to bully a person is not cool. Choose the apps that you use carefully and remember, Copy, block, and report to keep yourself safe. Hold on, I got another text. Oh, it's just my mom.
do you think that will eventually the pendulum will, will I do. Swing? I think the new punk rock will be anti-social media. I like that. And I, and I hope that the more I keep saying that. <laughs> These Listen, are not the I droids love, you're looking for. Uh, yeah, but here's the other thing. Like, I do, I do love social media for the things that we get to do on it, right? Like, yeah. when I use Instagram, it's very much to use it, my voice and talk about things that are important to me. You know, and same thing if I, when I'm, the way I use Twitter, right? And you're very good at being like, bah, da, 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 on Twitter. And there are, there are months in my life where I can handle being super vocal consistently in months where I'm like, I'm just going to laser beam in. Yeah. You know, like a ninja. The biggest compliment that I had felt that I could receive from people that recognize me was always like, oh, you're so much prettier in person. Yeah. That just doesn't exist anymore because the shit that everyone's doing to themselves on social media. Body dysmorphia right now is clearly at an all-time high. And, you know, it's... What was I reading? I was reading something the other day about... Oh, so there was a photographer, a very famous uh, photographer, who had asked uh, young girls who had not really been... Had never used a face-tuning app or something like that to, to take a picture of themselves, a selfie of themselves... And, you know, here were the different apps that they wanted to use them. Like, what do they think that their face actually looks like? Right. And it was very interesting to have minds or brains that hadn't been on those yet and to see what they would do to their face because they thought that that's how they what they should look like versus the people that have been doing it the whole, like facing nonstop, you know what I'm saying? Because there's a different beauty ideology. I feel like. Uh, well, when you walk down, like especially here, like you walk down like Beverly Hills, and everybody is doctored to look exactly yeah. the same, and it's so. I'm like, oh, it's like a soldier of yeah. clones, yeah. and the fact that because and I'm like, isn't it ironic that we're here to celebrate our individuality and our beauty, and yet everybody is like a. A carbon copy with the same YouTube tutorial makeup or what it's like. Oh, and also in- injectables because yeah. they're, you know, I think that's why everyone's starting to look the same well, because they're getting the that's cheeks, I mean, the doctors, they're getting the, the, the jaw, they're getting the, the cute perky nose all through injectables. So everyone's got this sort of clone look about them. It's very strange. It's like being in some very like weird dystopian. I, so I have some scary stats. Oh, Lord. And some interesting ones. It takes women half their lives to achieve half the level of body self-esteem as the average teenage male. Of course. Especially when our beauty standards are consistently changing. Right. Depending on the trend or the fad, our whole lives we're trying to keep up with some people telling us, oh, now this is it, right? Now this is it. It's like as if our, our bodies are supposed to be made out of some kind of clay that we can yeah. shape and form to be everybody's win. Yeah, like you know? when I was growing up, it was all about Kate Moss and being like wayfish. Me too, yeah. There's there's no way. I'm 5'2". I know. Now I'm body shamed because they're like, you need to eat it. Fucking cheeseburger. And I'm like, fucker. I've seen you eat. You eat I a lot. eat so <laughs> many. Like, like this is a result of like, you know, having an autoimmune disease and like this, and it's like, right. and I don't have to fucking explain myself to you, asshole, because I'm done yeah. with that. I'm not selling my body for you anymore. Right. And I think that's the one thing that I realized when I was younger is that they had me as a child. Pro- basically, pro- I'm like, why was it legal that you would take me for Italian Vogue or any Vogue and put me naked in a bathtub at 14 years old and call it art? 
but anywhere else it would be child pornography. That's right. Did you ever get those answers? Are they no? Fighting? I, I that, that's one of the things I basically called out when I did. I had done. I, I called out the industry. It was God. It must have been like ten years ago when I ha- I was on the cover of the New York Times magazine again for the best story of the hundred years of the New York Times magazine. And um, so I did that with Nan Golden, you know, when I was 16. And then I did it again 10 years ago. And I was pissed. (laughs) You had some time to stew. Yeah, because it's just crazy to me. Because also what that did in the way that I dress, you know, like uh, from, let's say, 18, 19, 20, I've never been like uh, uh, someone that felt comfortable wearing tiny little things, which is interesting because... I feel more comfortable covered up because because I was so exposed. That's right. As a child, yeah, you know. So it's just so when we, but also like you know, it's going back to how self perception and you know now kids are having to think about this stuff whether they're famous or not famous because the minute that they go online, there's a perception that 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 any person should become famous and they do that by taking and growing off their clothes. up how I mean you were a model so you totally different situation but growing up how often did you actually have to look at yourself right and even if people took a picture of you they you'd had wait to get, to get, it get developed. developed and it wasn't like oh I'll I know this I know it's crazy it's crazy and now the obsession with the face goes beyond the mirror it's and then the obsession with oneself right and the gratification we get from people liking or it's people so replying. Horrific. It's Pavlovian. It's scary. It's Pavlovian. It's like when you take an elephant and you train an elephant. You know, you put a stake in the ground, and they would do this at the circus and wrap it around the elephant's leg and give it five feet to walk around in a circle. You do that for a week, you take off the rope, and that elephant feels like it's bound for life. And we are doing that to our children and to ourselves. We're the last generation that knew it was like to to have to write a postcard right. or a letter or if some if, if you couldn't reach somebody at home or have a conversation you know like <laughs> it, like we are the last generation that really existed without had a childhood that without technology right so we have a righteousness sometimes inside like oh my god why can't we just right and we're like oh wait a second they don't know any different how do we make them understand and this is the one thing that I will always go to bat for with, and I get shit for this, but I'm sticking by it, the Kardashians, because I give them credit for being rounder than the ideal that we grew up with. And so this idea of curves, yes. big butts, um, all of those things are now a sign of beauty. Yes. And, and I think that that's healthy, Yes, however they achieve that is a different story. But I do think it's healthier for someone to look at, um, from my perspective, as far as what I saw my body image to be, I would have much rather have had Kim to look up to as a child than Kate, because Kate was totally unattainable for me. But I can look at Kim and still feel like, oh, my butt's okay. Yeah. You know? And so I think that that's beneficial for someone that's 13 that has a butt and that can look at her and say, you know, this is a, a body image that's attainable. And that's going to always be such a personal thing, right? It's like, for me now, that is, I will never be like Kim Kardashian. My body will never be like that. I will never be the, the ideal beauty. That is the ideal beauty right now. I'm the anti- my body is naturally the antithesis of that. Or my and body was how, and more how does like that make case. you feel? Does that freak you out at all? Sometimes it does, yeah. I mean, I, I guess when I think, I, I'm trying to think about times when I go into a lack 
you know, when I go into a place of like, oh, like when I have to like actually think about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when you're actually, yes, yes, there's times where I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh God, I'm too small or too thin. And like, oh, I, I, people are right. going to think that I'm, you know, unattractive or, and I'm like, wow, th- this is you, this is your body. Like, this is who you, who yeah. you are. And yet when I, when I was undiagnosed with endometriosis and horrifically sick all through my 20s, I was about 60, 70 pounds heavier, and then I was being called fat. So it's like I went from this body type to then bigger, and then I was being shamed in my own industry. And they're like, oh, well, they want to offer you this move, but they want to know why you got fat. And I was running two hours a day and barely eating, and it was all because of my hormones. And it wasn't until I was finally diagnosed and, like, on the right suppression and medications that I went back to this body, and then like, oh, now it's too thin. So it's like, I think it's, I'm looking, I've never been, perfect for anybody, right? you know? And the shame that I felt then was the same shame that I feel now if I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh, I, oh, everybody, you know, like, oh, my boobs are so little now, and oh, did it cut? Well, I breastfed. Only moms, like, understand this. Well, actually, dads do, too. Dads do, too. We exist in a world today where everything can be faked or fixed, Noses can be changed and stomachs can be tightened and cellulite can be lasered away, apparently, um, because that's what we're told to do, which is alter ourselves in order to be beautiful. For the past year, I've been quietly trying to navigate my fluctuating weight, and I've faced criticism in the past for talking about my body image. People told me that I didn't have the right to talk about being self-conscious about my body because I was skinny. And I understand how it seems inappropriate for someone who is average size to talk about problems with weight gain. But my point is, I didn't think anything was wrong with my body until I was in an industry that rewards and praises people for having a smaller waist than I will ever have. And it felt unfair to think that I would never have an industry-perfect body just because I wasn't genetically built a certain way. Over the last 15 years or so, lots of well-meaning people and companies have worked to improve women's body image by pushing the message that all women are beautiful, flaws and all. This is a really nice message, but it isn't fixing the problem. That's because girls and women aren't only suffering because of the unattainable ways beauty is being defined. They are suffering because they are being defined by beauty. They are bodies first and people second. I want to share a special message that actress and activist Kenidra Wood shared with me on body image, the word fat, and her own experience. Take a listen. For months, I've had this crazy obsession with the word fat. I've looked in the mirror, constantly analyzing myself from my waist to my cheekbone structure. I've also taken more pictures in the mirror than I usually do as a way to reassure myself that I'm not fat. I recall a few weeks ago about to take a picture, then staring at myself crying minutes upon minutes. I literally put myself down for about an hour, and I felt like crap even more after doing so like it was some sort of validation for me. I even had a troll call me fat recently and it added to the stress of already considering myself fat. Weight has always been a thing I've struggled with for so long. 
Either I would eat too much because I didn't want to look sick or anorexic, or eat too little in fear of being called fat or overweight. Admittedly, growing up, fat has always been used as a bad word and seen as a bad thing, and people who were considered fat at my school or just in life would go through hell. Too many times we associate being fat with being unhealthy, and that's not always the case. Studies from BBC News show that looking at data from over 43,000 U.S. people, they found that being overweight did not pose a health threat. Also, a study from Daily Mail provides us with information on why skinnier people can be unhealthier than fat people. Today, after realizing that it's what you put inside of your body and your inner health that really matters, I indeed have a newfound outlook on the word fat. If I'm fat, I'd rather be fat and kind than fat and mean-spirited. The kind of fat that is bad for you is if you're fat and unkind. Being fat isn't a crime. You aren't a disgrace or a waste. You're just a human with an extra set of curves, and that's okay. See, being fat isn't bad after all, right? The next time someone calls you fat, tell them come along and ride the wave. 94% of teen females have experienced body shame. Uh, but only 64% of teen males. But I still think 64% of teen males is pretty high. That's very high. I think it's just going to get, I mean, I think it's getting higher. 66% of teenage girls are either body negative or body ambivalent. And body negativity stays fairly consistent as women age. I really hope we can change that. Do you know what I mean? Because it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about how it's getting higher and I'm also thinking about the consciousness of women that are coming in and and yeah. and doing the best we can to to change it or provide a different way of thinking and loving and accepting each other you know what I mean like I think we have to start younger with everything yeah I really do and I think we have to look at these people that have these platforms on these social media platforms and really give, make them responsible for this like say well, we have to we have to have a certain level of accountability. If you have are in a position of power, you have a level of accountability. Yeah. You do. So here's the deal. So with the body dysmorphia, the chemicals that are set off in the brain from social media. Yes. Um, and the likes and it being like serotonin. It's, it's literally and serotonin. It just dumps all the chemicals that into your brain that exactly that, that give you that high then the anxiety kids have to go through with safety drills at school and active shooter drills it's not acceptable so those are three things that and then we cause... wonder why suicide is one of the leading causes of exactly death. those are three things that would would any any psychiatrist would ask to get information about if you were to go in with mental health issues, right? Like, what's your body image? Um, are you anxious about anything? I mean, these look are at, all... Look at, look at the, the rate of stress and anxiety and fear. It's higher now yeah. than it ever has been, and rightfully so, because when you're a child and you cannot go to your place of worship or school yep. or learn without being afraid that someone that you let in your very class yeah. will murder you. And that your own adults, the people you're supposed to, yeah. aren't even going to protect you. Yeah. And if you had any inclination to mental illness to begin with, those things are just going to make it worse. So my question is like, and it's a, you know, a rhetorical one, but how much is mental illness going to surge from this young generation? It already being, is. It's not if. Yeah. But like my seven-year-old and my four-year-old, 
what is their generation going to look like as far as mental illness and mapping the causes and the triggers because it's it's hard to be a kid right now. It really is. It's really is. hard. And I think I think it's about I don't know. I you know because there I can go down a road where I think terrible things and I can come up with statistics with you and I could give you that point of view. And then there's another thing that sometimes I have to relinquish into a greater faith of saying, you know what, our country and our people and who we are as human beings are resilient. And evolved. And, 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 and we, we may not understand now because everything is shifting so radically and it's so different from when we were younger. But yet look at what we went through when we were younger when you grow up with, um, it's relative. Rare, yes, it's, it becomes relative. The way that we respond physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, is is relative. It's terrifying because we we know of different times, right? So our reference point is different, but that doesn't mean that I'm just presenting an idealistic point of view. I'm saying that sometimes I have to go into that state of surrender and go back to my place of, you know what? I'm going to raise my children to know that they can be children now. I'm going to raise, surround them with people that are loving and that are culturally competent. Yeah. I heard this great, this great thing that I, I sort of live by with raising my kids, which is every child needs, especially through adolescence, five people that they need to feel responsible for and towards, that their actions mean something to those five adults. And I think it's so smart because it takes the – parenting is obviously a big part of it, but in the teenage years when you don't want anything to do with your parents, if there are five other people that you don't want to disappoint – Yes. That you want to make proud outside of the family unit. And that's really important. And I do, that's exactly it. And I do that with my kids now. Yeah. That's why, you know, our, there are particular friends of ours that are, they're godparents that they ha- are already experiencing and developing that relationship with. Yeah. That they have to answer to, that they have yes. to feel a sense of pride to make yes. them proud. That's important. I think it's really important. And it's part of that village mentality that I think we've lost. I know. I can't exist without it. Yeah. And we can't do it all ourselves. No. No, 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 no. No. People try, but Even we though can. we've been trying, you know, but we, we can't. And I think it's... How about a- this? Women hit peak body positivity between... You want to try to guess the ages? 40 and 50. 35 and 54. But that only happens to 13% of women. I'm so excited. I'm turning 40 in, on April 23rd, and I can't wait. 40 is great. I love um, it. It's like... Yeah. So that's why I'm like, oh, it, it probably 40, yeah. 50 or 30. Like the whole ageism thing, I've never felt I know, in my I entire know. life. I, I, I feel like it is so... Because uh, you hear all the time, especially in our business... Like, oh, once you reach a certain age. I call bullshit on that. I really do. I do too because the the parts I get now are are so so much much better. And complex. (laughs) Funnier. And interesting. Yes. Yes, 100%. Yeah. So I think it's it's so true. And that's other people wanting to put an expiration on something, right? So it's like I don't don't, don't, don't experience that. I don't subscribe to that philosophy at all. And I would only add that I think it's so interesting because when you – are this age, like for me, when I was in my 20s and I was in my body in my 20s with, you know, the six pack and like the 
tight everything. Yeah. I still felt like shit. Yes. Right? Like, of course. I still looked in the mirror and saw and all the like flaws. Shit. Yes. You know? So, and it wasn't until after I had my kids where I, the body positivity happened because I, know. I realized it wasn't I, my it's existence. It's not about you. No, and my existence and my body wasn't. I, I didn't give a shit if I was attractive to everybody. Yes. Like, you just get to That's the thing. You don't. Yeah. Who you, you, it's, yeah. It's totally different. Like, as long as my husband finds me attractive, yes, I don't really care about anything else. Yes. You know? 100%. And especially not what society projects on what No, because is. you're, like, you're, because society thinking that you're beautiful or what your body looks like does not matter. How amazing are women's bodies? It's, it's incredible. It's, it's so the beautiful. The perfect machine. So incredible. It really is. Whoever, however it happened with the cells coming together in the way that they did or whatever you believe in, the creation, we are the perfect machine. And to not, I wish I felt more like that in my 20s before I had kids because I would have been fucking unstoppable. I know, right? (laughs) I know. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Always. You're just amazing. I love you. you so much. The world is full of liars, but nothing lies more than a mirror. We look into a reflection and see laws that are invisible to the world, but larger than life in that glass. A tiny pocket of cellulite on the back of our thigh, a scar from a blackhead that dotted our face in 1992, a slight chip in a tooth or an extra pound, look like you can see them from space. And if we don't fit perfectly into the preordained and unachievable standard of beauty, those things we perceive as flaws can bury us under the weight of that reflection. We do not see ourselves as others see us. If beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so many of us are unable to behold ourselves accurately. We, men and women, are pushed by unrealistic expectations into a never-ending pursuit, not even of perfection, but of some bizarre, computer-enhanced, unattainable plastic and lipstick perfection that just does not exist. Bigger in the right places, smaller in the right places. We talk about bee-stung lips, As if that is something to achieve instead of your body swelling to fight a poison injected into it by a six-legged monster with a spear on its ass? We get penile extensions because of internet porn and inject pounds of silicone into our butts because we are told that men get sprung. Listen to me. This is not normal. And it matters. It really matters. In a recent survey, only 12% of women who responded were happy with their body. While it's worse for women, it exists for men too. Only 28% of men were happy with their looks in another survey. And while it's hard to find good surveys on the matter, medical literature reports similar difficulties for trans and non-binary people. We hate the way we look because the standard we set for ourselves is not the way we look as normal, healthy humans. It's very true in my industry where women over a certain age cannot get work. 
So we perpetuate this problem, going to often unhealthy limits to try and look young enough to play women who are exactly as old as we are. I recently read a quote by a woman named Hannah Brencher, and it stuck with me. The best gift you are ever going to give someone is the permission to feel safe in their own skin. I would add that we can give this gift to ourselves. I give you permission. You should give you permission. Your skin is the right skin for you. My skin is the right skin for me. Now, somebody tell that to casting directors, please. Sorry. Not sorry. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windage. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.